Let's pray together. Dear Lord, your majesty extends beyond our comprehension. The ocean deeps, the empty vastness of space, the space between the very cells of our bodies, all are your creation, and you inhabit them in ways we cannot understand. Your goodness enfolds us. There is nowhere we can run from you, even when we try to hide in our own minds, in our own guilt and fear. You come to us. You comfort and restore us. Your kindness is radical. Your life-giving rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. We confess that we are so limited. We can do no good thing on our own. We can't love without bias. We struggle to understand how to do your kingdom work in our world. Forgive us for this lack of vision. Make us more like you. Father, each day... News media brings us a new issue to invite concern, to scoff at, to fear, to have an opinion about, and often simply to feel futility. Lord, protect us from all unworthy thoughts and convict us in our attitudes. Give us, as a church and as individuals, your ideas of justice. You denounce the extravagant offering that is merely a way of appeasing our conscience for ongoing sin and have told us that a simple life of mercy, just living, and a posture of humility before you is the way to your heart. Confirm us in humble using and giving, eating and drinking, and thinking. Make us more like you. Gracious God, make us care deeply for those in our families, our church, and in our community. Make us diligent in prayer, both private and communal. Make us hunger and thirst for your presence in prayer, for that time to go to your throne of mercy. Make us pray with gladness for those who love us, with fervor for those who are sick and in need, and with courage for the great ills of the world. We pray that all your children will come to an understanding of the depth of your love in Christ Jesus, and that we will have a deeper desire to prepare for our ultimate destiny. Teach us to pray like you. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to hear your word and bless Jeff as he preaches today. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, 
chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It can be found on page 1082 of the black-covered Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you, or on page 18 if you have the Acts study book. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. We knew that we had entered kind of a unique, odd subculture when our boys asked about shaving their legs. (laughs) Now, my wife Amelia was a swimmer in junior high and high school, and all our kids, as they grew up, got on swim teams in high school. And uh, we entered into this whole world because, you know, swimming for exercise or for fun is one thing, but swim team subculture is its whole own little world. There's, we discovered there's camps and magazines and jargon, like we had to learn things like I am and the bell lap and uh, flip turns and short course. And, and there was this community of shared suffering as we sat through six-hour meets together and breathed chlorinated air. And um, then there was all the bonding experiences, like the boys all dyeing their hair the same color. And us feeding a house full of teenage boys mountains of pasta before a big conference meet. And then before conference finals, the boys wanting to shave their legs to help them swim faster. I think the theory is that it would take like one one thousandth of a second off of your time. And all of those shared experiences created some friendships and connections, but it's limited if you think about it, right? It's, it's kind of self-contained. It, it, it's a narrowly focused subculture. And that's true for a lot of the things that we get involved in. If you're into Irish dance, it probably doesn't change your plans for your life or how you view your eternity. Being a knitter probably doesn't shape the most profound values of of you as a person or or how you deal with conflict. Uh, Running doesn't change how you handle emotional problems. And and being a NASCAR fan doesn't shape how, how you have hope for the future or or how you deal with suffering, right? There may be a whole subculture in in all kinds of areas, but it's narrow, it's kind of limited in focus, and it's mostly something you choose to do for your own fulfillment. So as long as it's still doing something for you, as long as it's still enjoyable, as long as you're still getting something out of it, you'll stick with it. It doesn't necessarily change you. 
It doesn't change your worldview. It doesn't change your identity. But when you become a Christian, you're not joining a club. You're not entering into a subculture. Christianity is not something that we do on Sundays or you know, in our leftover time during the week. It's not just a way of being with others or becoming a better person or fulfilling a religious impulse. When you become a Christian, you become a member of a new community, a new humanity, in fact. And in this community that God has created and calls you into, we get a whole new way of living and thinking about ourselves and an expansive, world-changing view of what's important and what kind of people we ought to be and how we're to live, how we spend our money, how we relate to people who are different from you, how you handle conflict, how you forgive people. Yeah, of course, we have our own jargon and we have our own camps and we have our own magazines and, and our own bonding experiences, But church is not something that we come together to do for a few hours a week and then go back into our sort of independent, isolated lives. Church is not just a subculture. Church is a spirit-filled community that embodies God's kingdom. Church is a spirit-filled community that embodies God's kingdom. That's what Luke is getting at in this passage. That's what he's picturing for us. Now, we're in the book of Acts in chapter 2. It's on page 1082 in those black Bibles in the seats in front of you or uh, on page 18 in your Acts journal. And the very first thing that we notice in verse 42 that jumps out is this statement. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves to. They were invested in. They were committed to. Now, we understand what that means because all of us have habits and patterns in our life, right? We all have things that we do regularly. Hopefully, brush your teeth, uh, practice hygiene, uh, you know, maybe drink coffee is a commitment we make every day. Maybe for some of us, drinking many cups of coffee. Uh, maybe we listen to, we're committed to listening to specific programs or podcasts or, or reading the news. We all orient our lives, all of us, around certain habits and practices and routines that shape us. And you can tell a lot about what someone values by the habits and the routines that they prioritize in their lives. And Luke records these things of what these first followers of Jesus did, not just because it's a, an interesting historical record, but because it's so countercultural. Nobody lived like this in the ancient world. Nobody hardly lives like this in the modern world. It's a totally different way of doing life that happens within the community that God's Spirit creates. That's the whole idea of this kingdom mentality. God says, you are my people. And I want you to reflect in the community that we will build together a different way of doing life from the way you used to live. We're not just creating a subculture that's in contrast to the world. We live in the way that God himself is with us. 
We're reflecting what God is like in the community that he calls us into together. That's why independent Christianity, you know, just having a personal relationship that's just me and Jesus and, and churches, you know, kind of off here over in the side, maybe uh, if I have some extra time. The, the Bible knows nothing about that. That's not what this is. God says, I'm creating a unique community through you, and I want to show my goodness and my glory in the world through my people. You will reflect what I am like with each other to the world. And this is a record of what these first followers of Jesus did in their situation. And just with any narrative passage, we have to figure out what to do with these details and with this example, because this is not an epistle where uh, an inspired author is saying, here's exactly what you do. It's recording what they did in their circumstance. And the context is, Peter has just empowered by the Spirit, preached this sermon talking about the life, the death, the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus, and the implication that that has, and calling people to come to faith in him. And 3,000 people respond to that call. And now they're suddenly added to the community of Jesus followers. And probably, again, remembering the context, most of them are out-of-towners. There was a huge crowd that the population of Jerusalem swelled to five or ten times its normal size with pilgrims who were there for the feast. And so they ex probably extend their stay in Jerusalem to learn more about Jesus and how to do life with him. And if you think about it, there's going to be all kinds of cultural elbows bumping and people speaking different languages and having different expectations about what it means to do life and, and all kinds of practical challenges. Where are these people going to stay? What are they going to eat? Who's going to provide for them? And how are they going to relate to each other across all these vast cultural and linguistic differences? And so this is a picture of how God's people responded to this unique challenge based on the kind of people that they are and the kind of community that the Spirit was leading them to create. This is a group of people who were marked by a whole new set of habits and routines and priorities as a response to the good news of Jesus. And they devote themselves to these patterns. And, and as we Notice as we'll go through the text, what, what marked this community was centering themselves on Jesus and being committed to a set of habits that together shaped them as his followers in a unique way because church is a spirit-filled community that embodies God's kingdom. So let's go through this text together and I, I want us to notice kind of four main things here. And talk a little bit about what this might mean for us in our context. First, church is a learning community. Church is a learning community. The very first evidence that Luke mentions of the Spirit's work and presence is that they devote themselves, in verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. Now remember, Peter has just addressed a, a massive crowd and thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus and how Jesus was reconciling the world to God by his sacrifice, absorbing our punishment in himself and by his love and his power, conquering death and offering the, his victorious resurrection life to all who will trust themselves to Jesus. And 
That's the message that Peter preaches, but that's different from the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching here is instruction that's going to help me figure out how do I live now in light of that reality? What does it mean for me to be a person who's been reconciled to God and to one another through what Jesus has done? The apostles' teaching is about helping me unpack and explore the thousands of implications of what that transformation means for my life. That the New Testament didn't exist yet, remember. It's in the process of being written as these events that Luke records are happening. When when the story is taking place, you have the actual apostles, the inspired prophets of God who are guiding these new followers of Jesus to figure out what does it mean for us together to live in light of the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. And this apostolic teaching now for us is what we would call the New Testament that guides us in exploring what it means for us to live as followers of Jesus. Because the gospel creates a a whole new community, and it brings us into a new kind of life that it's going to take our entire lifetimes to unpack and explore the implications of together. The, The gospel invites us into a whole different story for our lives. And And our hearts and our minds are being retrained in how we think about our identity and our value and our money and our possessions and how we do our work and how we think about sex and relationships and conflict and forgiveness. And a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is someone who's committed himself to be a learner in that new pattern of life together. So one of the most important tasks of the church is to facilitate gatherings where that kind of learning and exploring and unpacking God's word together can happen. Not just learning facts about Jesus, but new ways of living. And the, and a, the best example I can probably think of this from my own life is I went to seminary for three years. And, and you might think, well, man, that's, boy, What a unique opportunity. That's where you go and you get all the answers. And no, definitely not. That's, if anything, where you learn how to ask the right questions and figure out how to understand and unpack God's text. At the time that we were in seminary, where I really grew the most in knowing and following Jesus was being taught and mentored and encouraged by a couple at our church who was about 10 years older than us. And they were a little bit farther along in following Jesus. And and they kind of came alongside us. And we spent time together just doing life and talking about parenting and marriage and life and work and relationships and money and all of it. That's, That's what's being pictured here. These disciples, you see, didn't imagine that because they had the Spirit, that meant he was the only teacher they needed. They devoted themselves to learning all the implications from other Christians of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that means we have to be committed to listening to God and seeking his word, not only on our own, but in community with others here on Sunday mornings, in corporate worship, in 
grow classes and, and what we call deep dives, concentrated courses in a specific subject, and, and gathering in our homes and, and in coffee shops as, as we open up God's Word together to learn together, to encourage one another, to help each other grow in following Jesus. Is that true of you? Is, is that a commitment in your life? Because to be part of the community of Jesus means you're in a church, which is a learning community. And then second, church is a loving community. Oh, this is maybe the most beautiful and, and stretching thing that we see here. They devoted themselves in verse 42 to the fellowship, which is this Greek word that maybe you've heard before, koinonia, which simply means to have things in common, to share in common. In verse 44, all who believed were together and had or held all things in common. And the idea shows up again even in verse 46, where Luke literally says, they continued in one mind and took their meals together. Being devoted to the fellowship is a commitment to being built together into this new family that we're all put together in. And at its most basic level, to, to love one another, we have to be together. I mean, we can't have fellowship, we can't share our lives and, and everything about us in common if we don't gather. And of course, that happens here on Sunday mornings when we gather in worship and teaching, but, but we really only experience deep fellowship with the people that we invest time with to get to know one another and just in the common phrase, to do life together with. We get to know one another personally. In other words, it's not going to happen just showing up here on Sunday morning. We get to know one another by, as these disciples did, going house to house or restaurant to restaurant, if that's an easier format for you. There's something to be said for food and fellowship going together. I mean, that was the pattern of these believers of Jesus. And, and the fact that Luke talks about it as breaking bread suggests that these were not necessarily elaborate feasts. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, the, the china and the house is all organized and, and it, you know, it looks like it be, could be in a house beautiful magazine or whatever. If it has to look like that, it's probably never going to happen for most of us. It's just a simple meal. We're all eating Anyway, that's one of the habits that we've committed ourselves to, I think, all of us. Like, we eat daily. And as we eat daily, there's an opportunity for us to simply open up our homes or go to a coffee shop together and break bread together. Opening up our homes, though, is a practical and a powerful way to communicate welcome and love. But beyond opening their homes, they practice a kind of radical generosity with each other. In verse 44, all who believed had all things in common. They sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is not some kind of, uh, you know, proto-communism or communal living necessarily. The, this situation in Jerusalem was unique. There were, again, thousands of pilgrims who had shown up, and they needed grounding in their new faith, and they needed places to stay and beds to sleep in and food to eat. And so this church opened their homes and their pocketbooks to help not just these pilgrims, but any among them who were in need. It was this radical reorientation 
that God's spirit brings about that says, if God has put it in my hands, it doesn't really belong to me. He's entrusted it to me for the use of someone else. And, and this was a, a bit like, you know, maybe the offering that we took up for Resurrection Church in Kiev or the Arabaptist Theological Seminary in response to significant crises in their communities. And, and many of you here at Faith responded with just beautiful, radical generosity. But here in Acts, it's, it's sharing all kinds of things. Money, time, resources, homes. It's opening my home up to be a place where we can be together and, and talk about and share things that matter to us as followers of Jesus. Koinonia is not even just recognizing that we're sharing things. It's that we're connected in a unique and an, and an important way because we are each connected to Jesus, and that means we're all connected to one another. We belong to one another. Do you remember what, when Jesus was teaching one time and someone came and said, Teacher, your brother and your brothers and your mother are here. And Jesus said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Is it not those who love the Lord and obey him? So it's this reorientation that because we belong to one another, because we're all connected to Jesus, I'm connected with the lives and the well-being of everyone who's connected to Jesus. And that remakes what I think of as mine and how I use it and how I hold on to it. So we, we don't, you know, the goal of our life is no longer gathering a big pile of assets and saying, oh man, now I've got it made and, and I'm set and I don't have to worry about the future anymore when there are believers who are in need. No. No, God's people have compassion and generosity and faith. And, and we say, if I give it away, God will replenish it. Because that's the kind of God he is. And that's what he's promised to do. Because he's the God who cares for me. Church is a loving community. And, and then it's a worshiping community. Again, back in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This fellowship was expressed in worship together. Now remember, this is still almost entirely a Jewish background community in which at this point there is already something like 1,500 years of history of prayers that God's people had structured together, starting with the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. And then through cycles of the Psalms, and, and then I'm sure these followers also added the prayers of Jesus to this. They gathered to worship, to pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that article, the definite article in The Breaking of Bread, suggests it may have been meals in homes, but also that overlapped with a remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. That would have probably been part of this meal that would be shared in people's homes. When Christian gathers, Christians gathered in homes, they would have a time of prayer around their meal and take the bread and the cup together to remind themselves the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And so it seems that their worship, interestingly, was both formal and informal. It was structured and unstructured. It took place both in the temple courts where they were gathering for the prayers 
and in their homes. It's kind of a unique combination, isn't it? They they seem to have attended the prayer services of the temple, but then also included more informal and spontaneous gatherings. And, And I think that's a healthy picture for us, that our structured, formalized services on Sunday morning are complemented with informality and openness of worship as we gather together in our homes. There's no division that's created here between structured and unstructured or traditional and spontaneous. The the church expresses both. The church needs both. And notice what defined this church's worship. It was both joyful and reverent or full of awe or fear, actually. Uh, In in fact... um, They were, uh, in verse 43, awe came upon every soul, which is literally the word fear. It's it's this reverent fear, this recognition that God has actually showed up in front of us. The God of all glory and eternity is here with us. And and so there's an, an amazement and an awe at that. But that's also divine, defined in verse 46 with glad and generous hearts. But because the God who showed up in their midst is both holy and loving and compassionate, and he's shown the depth of that compassion in sending his son to die for us, to reconcile us, and to open his arms to receive us. And, and so God has sent his son into the world and, and now has sent his spirit. So how much reason do we have to be joyful in our worship? Whether it's happening privately in my own times of talking with God on my own or, or gathering together in our homes or, or gathering together corporately. That, oh, I hope what comes through is a sense of joy and gratitude and awe that God loves us, that God cares for us, that God is committed to us, that, that our worship in, in, corporately and privately is a joyful celebration of the mighty works of a holy God who loves us and saves us. Church is a worshiping community, and we call one another to worship God. And church, finally, is a missional community. In verse 47, The Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. Those first Jerusalem Christians were not so focused on all the challenges and the needs right around them and and what's going on internally that they forgot about the larger world around them. One commentator put it this way, Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, all-controlling motif, the expansion of faith in Jesus through missionary witness in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually churches rise out of that witness. The church is a missionary community. And there's several things to notice here about this missional emphasis. First, it's the Lord who is doing this. It's Jesus himself who is adding to their number. And of course, he does it through our witnessing, and through our preaching, and through our sharing But the Lord is the one who does it. 
He alone has the power to bestow salvation. The Spirit alone is the one who convicts men of sin and draws them to himself. It's not having the right technique. It's not having the exact right witnessing formula. It's not thinking that, you know, if I just say the right word, if, if I just do the right thing here, that, then I can, you know, close the deal with this person, so to speak. We witness in humble dependence on Jesus through his spirit as the one who saves. And Jesus added to the number those who were being saved. I love this insight from John Stott. Jesus did not add them to the church without saving them. In other words, there's no nominal Christianity. The church is not a club that we just join because it might be useful or entertaining or or fulfilling in some way. And he did not save them without adding them to the church. There's no solitary Christianity. There's no independent Christianity. Salvation and connection and community go together. You cannot separate them. And the Lord added day by day. The church's evangelism was not occasional or sporadic. It's not as though they said, well, you know, we're just going to have this one big outreach effort this month. And, and the, the, the rest of the year, you know, we're going to focus on us. That just as their worship was daily, so was their witness. Because proclamation and praise were the natural overflow of hearts that had been gripped by what Jesus had done for them. And finally, in verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Boy, what a beautiful and unique picture that is, isn't it? Their community life itself is a form of witness. That's what Luke is getting at. How does the Lord add to the number of the people that he's saving? Yes, through the preaching of the gospel, through the witness of the church and telling the story, but also through the witness of the lives of these believers, through their new patterns of common life together that is so countercultural and so attractive and so radically different that it draws people to want to know what makes you do that. We heard so many stories like that on our recent trip to Lebanon, serving and meeting with our friends at Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. In response to the port explosion in Lebanon, Christians went into that area of town simply to love and care for their Muslim neighbors, to help them clean up and rebuild their homes and provide food aid. And story after story after story of people saying, why are you doing this? Why would you Christians help us Muslims? That's not the way the world works. And it opened up so many doors to tell about the love and the grace and the kindness of a Lord and a Savior who cares for these people and is expressing his love through his people. Spirit-empowered witness happens through word and deed. That's what Luke is picturing here. The word brings together a community of people who are being transformed by that word and whose common life together pictures that word embodied and lived out. When God's people are faithful to living out the gospel story in community, the community itself becomes part of the witness. Church is a spirit-filled missional community. 
Jack and Linda Roberts started attending faith uh, this last year, and Linda recently asked to share what the community that she's found here at Faith has meant to them. Good morning. My name's Linda Roberts. My husband Jack and I have been attending Faith since last summer. A very dear friend, Effie Lewin, recommended we visit. We felt right at home the first Sunday we attended. People were so friendly and welcoming. And we heard about the regroup dinners on Sunday evenings, and we signed up. It was a wonderful way to meet new people, and the meals were delicious. We were asked to join a small group. It was a perfect decision. Little did we know how much we would need them. About a month ago, my husband fell in our kitchen and called out for help. I raced to help him get up, but broke a bone in my back while doing so. I had an x-ray and discovered that I had a compressed fracture in L1 on my spine. I lost weight because the pain affected my appetite, and I could not even lean over to put dishes in the dishwasher or cook. Well, our community group came to our rescue. They provided meals for us every evening and prayed regularly for healing. What a wonderful bunch of selfless, thoughtful people they are. I have since had surgery on my back and I'm healing. Jack and I could never have survived without the help and love poured out on us from the group. Do not hesitate to join a community group. We all need prayers and help from other Christians. And you may also have the opportunity to be the feet and hands of Jesus by helping someone in your own group. A community that's letting their hearts and minds be remade with a whole new story of of why they're here and and what it means to know God. They share their lives and their things and their time together in loving relationships with each other. They're doing it as a response of worship and gratitude to Jesus. And they want to see more people added to that community by inviting them and reaching out to them. The church is a spirit-filled community that embodies God's kingdom. This is not a, a to-do list. It's not a bunch of check boxes. It's, it's not you know, things that you're supposed to be adding to your life. They're the habits, the patterns, the routines that mark this spirit-filled community. They're, they're the things that shape them and, and give us pointers to what shape us in life-giving, spirit-empowered kingdom community. Jesus is inviting us, inviting you into a whole new world, a whole new life. Not a little Christian subculture that's just a part of who you are. He is your life. And that means your life is bound up with his people now in a new community that his spirit is creating. May Jesus reflect his kingdom life through us in community together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great and precious promises that you save us out of this crooked, corrupt generation that we all live in to become a new community, a new kind of generation, a new people. Would you do that here more and more at faith and in our city that faith would be a part of that work here. Father, for for those who have not really 
come to understand who you are and responded to the offer of your new life and become part of that community, I pray that you would help them see the beauty of what you offer and want to be a part of that life and that community with your people. And for those of us who have maybe known Jesus for a long time, and maybe we can see through this that we become a little inwardly focused, that you would show us that we can move in a different way and reflect more of what your kingdom looks like as your people. A whole new way of living. That we can reflect what you are like to us together and out into the world that more would come to know you. Thank you, Father, for the hope and the promise that you do that as we walk with you together in Jesus' name. Amen.